Thank you, choir, Pastor Edgar. entitled Great Expectations. This is our fifth sermon in this series on Great Expectations. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Abraham and how he probably had goals, dreams, and plans like many of you have goals, dreams, and plans for your lives. We have these great expectations. We desire that our life counts for something significant. We want our life to count for something more. We have a desire that our life would have purpose and meaning. We have these great expectations. However, many of us find a tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. God is sovereign and God is in control. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's the sustainer of all hope. We know that. But We also understand in order for us to become all that God has created us to be, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to read God's Word. In this Word, it will guide us on how we ought to live. We have a responsibility to be sensitive to God's leading by spending time on our needs in prayer. We have a responsibility to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God is sovereign, but we also have a responsibility to grow in God's grace, in God's wisdom. We know that if we want to have more than just a mediocre marriage, it's an investment of our time. We have a responsibility to that marriage. We have a responsibility to our spouse. We know that if we want to have more than just a mediocre family life, it takes time and effort, and it's an investment. The same is true with the church. We know that if we want to have more, if we want to live in a church or be a part of a church that is, lives beyond the mediocrity of our society, we can't just sit back and observe. We must be responsible. We must give of ourselves. We must invest with our time, our talents, our resources into God's kingdom. So we have this tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. What is God's responsibility and what is my responsibility? What is the difference between God being in control and my grasping back control of these plans, dreams, and goals for my own life? What does it truly mean to live a life surrendered to the Lord? What does it truly mean to say, I trust you and I obey? What does it truly mean to throw down that staff and to trust God with your future, with your identity? What does it mean to be a priest and to step in faith into the water of the Jordan, to trust God with your future? So we have this struggle with God's sovereignty and our responsibility. There's this tension between the two. Now there's another aspect for us to consider as we pursue God's purpose for our lives. And that is this, the choice of other people. Today we're going to look at the book of Esther. And I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Esther chapter 1. Hopefully you brought your Bibles with you today. 
Esther chapter 1. And in this story, we see how these three, God's sovereignty, personal responsibility, and the choices of others affect her picture, her purpose for life, and how they also impact us in our lives. Let us pray. Lord, we're so grateful today for your grace and for your love. As we look at the story of Esther, we see a story where your sovereignty, as we look back upon it, is evident. And that there are many moments where Esther wondered, where is God? We are there so often, Lord. And as we study God, as we study this story of Esther today, would you speak to us about our situation, about our lives? And would you help us, Lord, to be a people who are obedient to trust you in all things? Amen. Well, the story of Esther takes place in Persia. It's the capital city of Susa, which is, a modern day, which is in modern-day Iraq. And God's people, well, they're in exile at this time, and it's around about 470 B.C. So this is about 2,500 years ago that this occurred. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1 of, of Esther, we're going to go through this book very quickly this morning. So you can kind of leaf through it with me. We'll put up some of the scriptures, but uh, we're going to go very fast to cover this story. We find that there was a king in this story. His name was Xerxes. He was a powerful king. Matter of fact, he was ruling over 127 providences. His kingdom was the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time. He gave a banquet that lasted six months. Can you imagine a party lasting six months? Well, that's what King Xerxes did. And then when that party was over, he had another party for seven days. In this party, he invited all the people of Susa, the, the greatest and the least among them, to come to be a part of that party. And the scripture says that on the seventh day, when Xerxes was high in spirit, he called for his queen, Vashti, to come before him, wearing her royal crown. Well, I don't know. I, the scripture says high in spirit. Here's this king. He's kind of celebrating all of his wealth. He's kind of pompous anyway and just bragging on all that he has. And, and he's high in spirit. I, I got a uh, t uh, Facebook message this week. I have a friend. He's in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a part of you know the music there in Nashville. He's a writer and and he travels a lot and sings a lot. And, and uh, well, Friday night he went with his wife to dinner and a show, which means dinner and watching somebody else perform. And he said there was someone there who was overserved. Now we all know what that means. He had too much to drink. And he became very boisterous and kind of braggadocious and, and very loud. And he didn't realize he was loud. And then somebody was trying to get him to be quiet. He didn't want to be quiet. And they said, shh, be quiet. He didn't want to be quiet. And so then there was a fight that almost broke out. And, and so the, the little guy who owned the restaurant gathered some bigger guy and said, hey, would you help me escort this guy out of the building? And so they escorted him out of the building. Well, Xerxes is high in spirit, the scripture says. And he says, you know, uh, I have all this stuff. And, he, and you read through the scripture and it just talks about how much wealth he had. He says, you know, my wife, my queen, 
she's hot. I mean, she is really hot. And he begins to brag about his wife. She's so beautiful. And so one of the guys says, hey, well, bring her out here. Have her walk the aisle. And he thinks, well, that's a great idea. And so he sends, sends seven servants to go fetch back Vashti. And, well, Vashti, if you look at verse 9, Vashti is busy with the women who came for this party. So she's pretty tied up. She's got her hands full of all of her responsibility. And, and he says, come wearing your royal crown. Now, we don't know if that meant that he was, she was to come just unveiled or if she was to come just simply wearing a royal crown. But we know that she refused to come. So the king said, well, that's not right. You can't not refuse the king. And so he became enraged with anger. And, of course, he's high on spirits and, and a little on the drunk side. And, and he asked, you know, the people in leadership there, what should we do? Calls this cabinet meeting because that's what they should be dealing with, That, you know, what to deal with, how to deal with your wives. <clears throat> Well, one of the men was probably having problems at his own home, and he said, you know, what you should do is you need to stomp this out right now. He said, if you don't deal with this, every one of our wives will disrespect us, and our lives will be miserable. So why don't you proclaim an edict? And we find that, I think it's in verse of 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of the Persians and Media, which cannot be repealed. And that's important to the story. When a law is written, it cannot be repealed. That Vashti is never again to enter into the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give his royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then we quickly go to chapter 2, and it says, Later, when the anger of the king Xerxes had subsided. Later, when... He was no longer drunk when he came to his own mind. And, and, of course, we think this is just in a few days when he sobers up. He starts to feel lonely, and he kind of regrets the decision that he made. And I mean, he had plenty of wives. He had a harem, and, and he didn't need companionship, but he needed a queen. And he found himself lonely. And if you look down in chapter verse 16 of chapter 2, you'll find that actually four years had transpired in this later. And so later... The king is lonely, and he's moping around, and one of, his, one of his helpers, an attendant, proposed to the king, Hey, king, I know what will fix you up. Let a search be made for a beautiful young virgins for the king. Oh, that's a great idea. And so they issued a decree, and, and they searched for all the beautiful virgins throughout the 127 provinces, and, and they brought them in. Well, into this story comes a woman. Her name is Esther. She's living in obscurity. She lives in a monotheistic home. She's an orphan. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai. And the scripture tells us that Esther was lovely in form and feature. Now, I imagine that Esther probably wasn't caught up in all the hubbub about this beauty pageant. Matter of fact, if you look at chapter 2, verse 8, you will find that when the girls were brought before the king of Susa, they were in the care of Haggai. But Esther was also taken, it says. Look at the tense there, was taken. The story of Esther is often portrayed as this beauty pageant. However, 
it is more likely that Esther was taken not by choice, but by force. She knew that you could not deny the king a request. And if this was a request of the king, to deny that request could mean your own life. We don't know whether she volunteered for the job or whether she was drafted for the job. But what we do know is we have this young woman. Her name is Esther. She's an orphan girl. She knows what it's like to grow up without having a mom and a dad. She knows what it's like to struggle with feelings of abandonment. She knows what it's like to suffer loss. She knows what it's like to live in in an exiled land as a foreigner, as a refugee in that land. And she's been brought to this king of Persia at his whim. He doesn't share her values. He doesn't pray to her God. He doesn't want Esther for what she can bring to the kingdom. He just wants these girls for what they can bring to him. I don't think Esther was hoping to get a rose. I don't think she was caught up in all that. I imagine there were plenty in that one from those 127 providences that were caught up in the hopes of getting a rose. I can imagine the pettiness, the rivalries, the infighting, the envy, the jealousy. Sounds like a reality TV show, doesn't it? Women competing to get the attention of Haggai and those in authority over them in hopes of getting a final rose and being crowned the next queen of Persia. You see, we find in Esther's story there is this tension between God's sovereignty, personal responsibility, and the choices of others. So somebody with greater authority, a higher position, Somebody with an inside track comes up with this scheme to please the king. And in spite of the ramifications of what it will mean for these women from all these providences, because the king says it should be so, it is done. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you were doing exactly what you were supposed to be doing and and somebody with more authority? somebody with higher position, somebody on the inside track made a decision that affected you, and you begin to question, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? You say to yourself, I, you know, I, I've taken personal responsibility. I read his word. I I sing the songs. I I pay my tithe. I'm doing all that I'm supposed to do. I'm spinning my knees on prayer. Where are you, God? If you've ever said that, you probably find yourself in a similar situation that I imagine Esther was in. She must have been asking the question, God, can you work in this situation where are you God 
I imagine Esther probably had many of the same questions. She probably doubted God's sovereignty in, in that situation. Now, we can look back and we can see God's sovereignty. But she was in the midst of her situation. Yet, in the midst of all of this, Esther's true duty emerges. Chapter 2, verse 9 says, The girl pleased Haggai, and she found favor in Haggai's eye. So he gave her special beauty treatments, and he gave her special food to eat. He even gave her seven maids to care for her and put her in a special place in the harem. Chapter 2, verse 10 says that Esther had all these things in this favor, and yet she did not reveal that she was a Jew. And she didn't do that because it was important to the story, but also because her cousin Mordecai told her not to reveal that. So she had these 12 months of beauty treatments. All the, all the girls from all over the 127 months, they would have to go through beauty treatments for 12 months. They would go through six months of oil and myrrh and six months of perfume and cosmetics. I, I imagine they learned how to walk. I imagine they learned how to present themselves before the king. There were certain things that I'm sure they had to learn. And they had a year of beauty treatments. Now, ladies, I want you to think back to a time when you were dating. Some of you are dating now. Think back to a time when you're dating or when you're dating. And some of you might have to think way back. Some of you date monthly. You take your wife out on a monthly date. I'd encourage that. Let me ask you ladies something. How many of you have spent more than an hour getting ready for a date at some time in your life? Raise your hand. Oh, come on. Be honest, will you? (laughs) How many of you have spent more time getting ready for a date than the date itself? Raise your hand. Or how many of you enjoy getting ready for the date more than you actually enjoyed the date? Raise your hand. (laughs) A lot of hands there. Well, she went through 12 months of beauty treatments. And we find in chapter 2, verse 17, when it was her turn to go before the king, that the king was attracted to Esther more than any other woman. And she found favor and approval more than any other of the virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Well, at this time, Mordecai uncovers a conspiracy. You see, Mordecai is is queen, now queen, Xerxes' wife's cousin. So Esther's cousin, Mordecai, he's outside the gate. And these gates, typically, uh, the gate would be, There was an outer wall, an inner wall, and there would be somebody inside those two gates that would carry on business, and Mordecai was probably doing that. And he overheard a conversation of two guys who were angry with the king, and they wanted to assassinate the king. And so he told this story to Esther, and Esther revealed it to the king, and, and they found out that this was true, and they hung these two guys on a gallows. And they recorded it in the book of Annals of the king. Well, then we find in chapter 3 that Xerxes brought in the villain of our story. His name is Haman. And he honored him with the position, making him the most powerful man in all the kingdom outside of the king, making him his chief executive officer. 
So all the royal officials, they would have to kneel down or bow down whenever Haman would walk by. Haman was a man who was kind of boastful and proud of himself and quite egotistical. And, you know, of all the people, the king has chosen me. And he would walk outside the gate, and there was Mordecai, Esther's cousin. Remember Esther's cousin? His name is Mordecai. He would walk outside the gate, and everybody would bow except for Mordecai. You see, Mordecai refused to bow because he would bow to no one except for to bow to God. He would worship no other than God and God alone. Well, that angered Haman. And so anger, angered Haman decided that he would, uh, well, he would want to take Mordecai's life. But he thought to himself, and more his anger grew, he said, that's not enough for me just to take Mordecai's life. I'm going to kill all the Jews. I'm going to go before the king, and I'm going to ask that they will be annihilated on one day. And so Haman goes before the king, and he asks permission. He says, there's a people whose ways are different than our ways, who worship another god. Their traditions are different than ours, and they do not respect ours, and they should be done away with. So King Xerxes, not knowing that they were Jews, decided to agree with that. These people that were scattered among the provinces. And if it pleases the king, he said, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And so the king agreed, not knowing that his own queen was one of those Jews. So here we have this situation where somebody with greater authority, higher position... Somebody with an inside track has hatched a scheme to kill the Jews. So once again, we see in this story the tension between God's sovereignty. Lord, where are you in this? Personal responsibility, what is my role in this? And the choices of others and how it impacts us in our home, in our workplace. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, When Mordecai learned of this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. He began to wail in the city bitterly. And then in verse 8, he urges Esther to go before the king and to beg for mercy. Esther replied back, You don't understand, Mordecai. I, I can't go before the king. I haven't seen the king for over 30 days, and everybody knows that if you go to the king without being summoned, there's only one law, and that law is that you will be put to death on the spot unless the king raises his royal scepter. I cannot go before the king. Esther, Mordecai sent back word to Esther. Do you not think, verse 13 of chapter 4, do you not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place. But you and your family, your father's family, will perish. And who knows, says Mordecai, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. You see, in this story, we see how personal choice of others affect us. How they affected Mordecai. 
how they affected Esther, how they affected the Jews. But we can also see God's sovereignty. Look at verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Mordecai is saying to Esther, God will provide. God will deliver us. God is sovereign. And he's saying to Esther, maybe for such a time as this, you have come to this place of royalty. You see, an opportunity of a lifetime has to be seized in the lifetime of that opportunity. And we find in verse 15 that Esther said, Then go and fast and pray for three days, and I will do the same with my servants. And when this was done, she went before the king. And though it was against the law, she said, If I perish, I perish. You see, King Xerxes thought he got a beauty queen. But in reality, he got a warrior. A woman with great courage. She was willing to say, if I perish, I perish. Several years ago, uh, there was a mix-up with the Mattel, some of the Mattel dolls. It seems like some of the voice boxes were switched in the G.I. Joes with the Barbie dolls. When you would pull the string on the G.I. Joe, the G.I. Joe would say, Shop to you, drop. <laughs> and when you pulled the string on the Barbie doll, she would say, Take cover. Hit the ground. Well, in our story today, Esther is no Barbie doll. She's a woman of courage. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robe and stood in the inner courts of that palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting in his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her, and he held out his golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked Esther, Esther, what would you like? Even up to half of my kingdom will I give you. Esther replied, Would you and Haman join me today for a banquet that I have prepared? And they did so. At that banquet, the king leaned over and said, Esther, what is it you want? Even up to half of my kingdom will I give to you. And she said, Would you honor me tomorrow by joining me again for another banquet that I have prepared for you and for Haman? Yes, I will. So Haman went home that night, and, and he was kind of full of himself. After all, he was the most powerful man in the kingdom. And as he was walking out of the palace gate, there was Mordecai, the Jew. He would not bow, and, and Haman, just his anger just raged within him. He got to his house, and he gathered in his family and his friends, and he began to brag about all that the king had given him. How he was the most powerful man in all the kingdom, short of the king. How he had many sons and, and great wealth, the scripture says. He said, yet, even though I have all these things, I find no satisfaction. 
because of that Mordecai, the Jew, who disrespects me. Well, his wife was tired of hearing it time in and time out. Just do something about it. Just take the guy and hang him on some gallows. Why don't you just go out and build a 75-foot gallows outside of our house tomorrow morning, go before the king and ask, have permission to kill the king. Well, that pleased Haman. Well, that's a great idea. That's what I'll do. So the next morning he gets up. Well, in the middle of the night, that same night, King Xerxes goes to bed, but he can't fall asleep. He's just restless, and he's tossing and turning, and, and he can't fall asleep. And so he, he calls for one of his servants to come and, and read for me out of the book of the annuals of my reign. So they begin to read. He says, that always puts me to sleep. My life is boring. <laughs> so they begin to read through the story. And on the story, they get to the story where Haman stopped an assassination plot against the king. He revealed that to the king. And, and the king asked, well, what was, I mean, not hate Mordecai. What was done to honor Mordecai the Jew? And the servant said, well, nothing. Nothing was done to honor him? No, nothing. Well, who's in the court? Well, by this time, Haman, the evil villain of the story, was in the outer court. Well, bring in Haman. And so the king asked the question, what should I do for a man I desire to honor? Haman thought, well, who would he want to honor but me? After all, I'm the second most powerful man in all the kingdom. Well, king, why don't you give him a royal robe that you yourself have worn? And put him on a royal horse that you yourself have ridden. And put a crest on that horse. And have one of your princes walking through out the palace, throughout Susa, proclaiming, this is the man the king desires to honor. Well, that pleased the king. And so he said, do so immediately. For Mordecai, the Jew. I can imagine Haman's face. Here he was asking for permission to kill Haman. And now he's to honor Mordecai. So he goes and, and he does as the king directs him. And he goes home that night and he knows that he's undone. And the servants come and they get him. They bring him back to this second banquet that Esther has provided. The king leans forward and said, Esther, what is it you would like? Even up to half of my kingdom I will give to you. And she says, would you spare my life and the life of my people? The king was outraged by the request. What, 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 what do you, wait, 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 what do you mean? There's been someone who's requested that myself and all of my people be killed on one day. How can this be? Who would do such an evil thing? And she points to Haman. That day, Haman was hung on his own 75-foot gallows. And in this story, the story of Esther, we see God's sovereignty. You see, there's God's sovereignty, personal responsibility, and the choices of others and how they influence our lives. Sometimes we have choice things that happen to us in our lives. And we say, where are you, God? Esther had those feelings. 
God, how can you be in this? You see, there were no miracles. There was no burning bush. There was no pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. There was no water that came out of a rock. There was no parting of the Red Sea. There was no angel that appeared to them. There was no voice of God. God is not mentioned once in the story of Esther. And yet we see God's sovereignty throughout it. Sometimes in our lives, we ask, where are you, God? And we find this tension between personal responsibility and God's sovereignty. And we come to this place where we acknowledge that he is God of our lives, that he is Lord of our lives. Where we sing the song, Trust and Obey. You see, the story is amazing because Esther didn't fully understand God's sovereignty in all this, but she was obedient to God's leading. And God used her in a mighty way. In reality, it's our story, isn't it? As we're faithful to his leading, we just trust him one day at a time. We don't always see his sovereignty. We don't always see the big picture, but we trust him one day at a time. And because Esther trusted him, she was willing to give her own life for her people. Willing at the possibility that she might have to give her own life for her people. But 500 years later, Jesus came. And even though he was in a royal palace, even though he had all that God could offer in his kingdom, he came to earth for you and for me. Philippians says it this way. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross that's why he came for you and for me and what I want to say to you today is you may not see God in all of your circumstances but God is still sovereign And he is still there. And he loves you. And he died for you so that you might have life. You might have it to its full. Will you trust him today? One day at a time. One step at a time. I'm here to tell you it's the way to go. Trust him. Trust him. Let's sing that song, Trust and Obey. Let's stand together and sing.